We're doing a series through Luke before we took a break for Advent and some other sermons. So we're going to be picking it up back in Luke chapter 9. We left off at Luke 9, 37 to 50. We looked at those verses. We're picking it up at what has been called the central portion of Luke's gospel, verse 51, following through uh, the, through chapter 18 on into chapter 19. And uh, in this sermon this morning, I want us to get back into the flow of Luke's uh, gospel. So we're going to be looking at some general lessons for mission, lessons for mission as we come back to Luke's gospel. He is... Uh, showing Christ's work outside of Jerusalem and outside of uh, the nation of Israel, some of the ministry that he's doing. And now we see he is uh, picking up where Jesus begins to look and set his focus upon Jerusalem itself to do what he has come to do, namely to die for sinners. We're going to read a rather large portion of scripture this morning. We won't be able to cover all of the the points here, but again, just getting some broad lessons for, for mission. Look then with me, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. Listen then to the reading of God's own holy word. When the days drew near for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But this one said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter first, say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you, eat a, eat, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. 
Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. So far the reading of God's own holy word. May add his blessing to the reading and proclamation of it this morning. People of God, you remember, if you remember our study in uh, Luke's gospel, was emphasizing that Jesus came to save people from all walks of life, from all people groups, all nations. He's been ministering in regions outside of Jerusalem, chapters 7 and 8, uh, highlight that, beginning of chapter 9. But from this point on, Luke tells us in his gospel that Jesus focuses his attention, he's going to be focusing his attention on Jerusalem. He knew what he would face there, and yet he wanted to accomplish his work so that he might win salvation for his people. Indeed, he was longing for it. He says later in Luke chapter 12, I must be baptized, and I am, I am pressing on to that end until I accomplish the purpose which God has given to me. Well, this morning, then, lessons for mission. Again, we're not going to be able to cover all of the interesting uh, ideas here in, in this pericope, in this section of Scripture, but we want to look at some basic lessons for mission. Why do I title it that? Well, Christ was on mission, and we are on mission. And as I studied this passage, I was struck by the lessons for us in it as we follow after Christ as we live as witnesses for him. And we're not headed to Jerusalem to give ourselves in sacrifice for the redemption of others, but we are headed to the new Jerusalem and we're calling others to walk that path with us, to wander as sojourners in this land, in this wilderness, while we walk to that heavenly Jerusalem that Christ has prepared for us, that the Father has prepared for us. And we will experience similar challenges to those our Lord faced. Well, first we see that Christ and his gospel will meet resistance. Jesus was meeting resistance everywhere he went. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. 
After all that he had said, he taught like no man, He's, he healed, he, he showed signs of being the Messiah, and yet his own did not receive him. They rejected him. He was hated, despised, not just by the Jews, but also, as we see here, by the Samaritans, the, those dwelling to the north. Jesus told his disciples that they would face resistance as well. And that's the word that we hear this morning, the, the, the warning to us that we will face resistance. And it ought not to be because we are offensive in ourselves, obnoxious, those that are annoying to be around. But we ought not to be surprised that even when doing good, we will face resistance. Jesus was perfect And he faced resistance. The people of God will face resistance because they bring the word of God and live for God's glory. Interestingly, this is not just a suggestion, maybe something to think about. Well, maybe maybe this will happen. Maybe it won't. It will. In fact, Jesus says it will. But he also says this in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. When you speak the truth, when you bring the word, blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Something to think about. We say, well, maybe if I just keep my head down and my mouth shut. And, uh, well, first off, that, that, that would be objecting to what God calls us to. But even then, if we're living it out, if we're, if we're living the truth, if it were possible to do that apart from the word in keeping with Scripture, there would still be resistance. Because people who are not regenerated don't stand side by side with the truth. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So as he prepared to send them out, he told them they would be rejected by some. Chapter 10 tells us there will be some that don't receive you. They shouldn't be surprised for man is dead in sin and Satan is a powerful deceiver and opponent. People of God being committed to gospel ministry means that we will face resistance. And Jesus says, blessed are you if you suffer for my name. It's not something we avoid. That's, that's saying that there's a blessing there. That, that, that's a sign that God is at work. There's a sign that, that God is, is uh, looking with favor upon us, working in us by his spirit. And we'll meet resistance from both religious and irreligious. Now, we're not surprised when... When the irreligious resist the truth, they don't want to hear that they need to come to Christ. They find religion to be superstitious, something that that is not needed. They don't want to hear about having to come to Christ if they want to escape death. They don't believe it. They find it irrelevant. But the religious can also resist the gospel. Many religious preach another gospel. The church has social transformer Social justice warrior, equity promoter. The focus being on having the best life now. Now, don't misunderstand. The church is to be about that. We're to be concerned about equity. We're to be concerned about changing the structures that are broken by sin. But if our focus becomes on that, that material 
grasping that material uh, treasure that we're here to help you get the most out of this world and the gospel is sidelined, then we aren't thinking about eternal matters. And the church is called to be speaking of matters of eternity. We should want to bring the truth of God's word to bear on society and on its structure, that it might be reformed where it can be. We should help the world understand how acceptance of the scriptures can change lives and change societies. But we dare not ignore or downplay the fact that we are all sinners alienated from God, and that must be addressed for there to be an eternity before us that is glorious and not eternal in judgment. Remember, Satan is powerful in the world. Paul says in Ephesians 2, he's powerful in the world. And he wants to take everyone down. Unbelievers, believers. He wants to introduce confusion in the church with the plan to alienate people from each other by getting them to ignore the unity that can only come in Christ. If we're going to be united, the the only organization, the only place where such diverse people can come together is in the church because Christ unites us by faith. We have a common need, no matter our background, no matter our, our social status, that in Christ we can be united. The devil wouldn't want nothing more than for the pulpit to become a place where we can separate ourselves politically or we can speak about socioeconomic issues and and sound very helpful but really, really alienate very quickly. Indeed, the gospel is to be proclaimed, the word of God. And in many churches, it is being sidelined. Jesus warned his disciples that confusion would come even in their day from the religious. There would be a time when they would put them out of the synagogue where they would seek to speak and to teach, where they thought that they, where they would think that they were doing God a service if they killed the disciples. Such is the confusion that Satan can introduce. John 16, verse 2. So we aren't surprised by resistance to the gospel from religious people. We are surprised when that happens from those who are of different religions, different backgrounds. The Samaritans had their own worship, their own history. We won't get into that this morning, but they were started by some of those who stayed behind from the Babylonian exile, intermarried there. They were seen as less than, as the Jews would look at them, the unclean. We come to all sorts of people, all different kinds of people with the word. They serve different things, different gods. When they reject the gospel, when we're not welcomed, how do we respond? Well, that's something we want to consider as we look at these verses Here in Luke 9, when Jesus sent his messengers ahead of him to this village of the Samaritans and they made preparation for him, they would not receive him. And the response of James and John 
is this, verse 54, when his disciples James and John saw this, saw that they would not be welcome, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. They went on to another village. James and John, whom Jesus nicknamed the sons of thunder, were ready to judge the Samaritans for their disrespect. They took this personally. They wanted to be calling down judgment upon them, but Jesus rebuked them. Another manuscript tradition offers a longer text. It's in the footnote in your, I think in your Bibles. It is in mine. I don't know if it is in the pew Bibles there, but it says, when they had said this, Jesus said to them, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. Well, there's fairly wide agreement that this reading is not original, but it does help us understand the nature of Jesus' rebuke, which I think is, is rightly understood here. He was saying, you don't understand why I've come. I've come this first time to lay down my life that people might be saved. Not come to usher in God's judgment, but to save. The attitude of the disciple of Christ must be that of his master to hold out salvation to those in the world without calling for immediate judgment upon those who refuse the gospel or who make personal attack. Jesus declares that he came not to bring judgment, but to endure God's judgment against sin and open the way for, the, for sinners to be rescued from that judgment. He says in John three seventeen. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And when he comes again, there will be judgment. We are in the day where we proclaim the word. We do not attack other people, but rather we call them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that they might not face eternal judgment beyond death. The rebuke of Christ to his disciples is clear, yet it does cause us to pause. At least it made me pause as I was studying the text, verse, uh, chapter 10. He says something seems a bit different, verses 10 and 11. He says, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, in even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. This is a warning that God is not pleased. This was a, a symbol of, of showing that you, one is not pleased or, or is to be, to be uh, separate from such a person. This was a warning that God is not pleased with those who refuse his invitation to come. God is welcoming us. He's calling us to himself. But he warns that if we reject him, that we will be cut off. So there is this measure in all of these verses that we can expect resistance to the gospel, and yet we are called to bring it. The second point from, this, from these verses may not be immediately clear to us after hearing about how the gospel will be rejected, but the point is this, that we should not hesitate to obey Christ's call to follow him. And we should also not fail to count the cost. Well, first, counting the cost, verses 57 and 58. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Well, the external call is given to all to follow. The person must count the cost of commitment. Jesus says elsewhere, who plans to build a tower without first counting the cost? He's, he's laying out before us what it costs us to follow after him. There is calculation. Young people, when you commit to something, there's cost, there's practice time, there's monetary commitment, there's sweat equity, there's study. Jesus makes that point for discipleship. Following him means committing to him, which means saying no to certain things and focusing on others. It means that there is there is a dividing. There are certain things that we say no to and certain things that we now commit to. And it means putting forth all of our effort into that. It's very interesting. Matthew records this exchange also. And he says that the man was a scribe. Matthew 8 verse 19 tells us that this man was a scribe. Well, that's rather remarkable when you think about it. Here's a scribe who is observing the Lord Jesus and he is willing to make such a commitment. It's remarkable because scribes had many traditions and they were very resistant to any teachings which conflicted with their practices or challenged their understanding of those practices. The man says that he's committed to Christ wherever wherever he went and Jesus challenged him to think about what that would mean. It would mean being unwelcomed and despised by many of his colleagues. He would likely not be offered a place to stay. I want you to understand something, that this is very contrary to what we see as success in ministry today. Those churches which are labeled successful and, and appear on the front of magazines and are studied for their methods are those that have big numbers and promise prosperity. And promise that you will be influential, that you will be happy. And Jesus says, not so much. If you follow me, you're not going to have the large, you're not going to be attending the largest church. You're not going to be the most popular person in the room. You're not going to be uh, the one who's, who's making the most money. As though God was just simply here to make us materially blessed. You have a message to bring, and the message is that we are alienated from Christ, or from God, rather, and we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, humbling ourselves that we might be reconciled to God. Now, tonight we're going to see that God is a father, and I think it's, it's fascinating. It's been interesting to me to look again at that opening of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven. Um, this idea of reconciliation, we oftentimes get this idea that he's, he's against us, but he is for us as a father. But I don't, I'm going to confuse my sermons. I'll, I'll wait and preach that one tonight. But God, we are at odds with him because of our sin. And, and when we call others to that realization that you are, that you are under judgment apart from Christ, that, that's not going to make you popular. And yet that is our call. So Jesus says, count the cost. Consider. Because this man's looking around and seeing all the people following Jesus and thinking, wow, this, this guy's got a good thing going. He's, he's really popular. He's, he's, uh, he's got quite a following. I kind of like that. I'd like that too. 
And Jesus says, I don't have a place to lay my head. Well, the fact of the matter is, we see that today, followers of Christ are being excluded, banned from social arena. Um, We are not surprised by that because it was so in Jesus' day and we must count the cost. But then also Jesus says, but don't fail to come. That's another lesson here. Counting the cost, but then don't fail to come. And we see that in the next verses. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. There's the message you have. Proclaim the kingdom of God. What it means, how to get in, how, how to be uh, found in that kingdom. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but for, let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's, what's Jesus doing here? Is he showing a, a callousness to the situation? No, I think what he's saying in light of the context is that we are not to hesitate to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we count the cost. When he calls, we are to come and to follow. There's a debate about the situation that's in front of Jesus here. Was the man's father dead already and there was a funeral imminent? Or was he saying that he would follow Jesus but only after his father and mother were gone? It seems to appear, based upon what Jesus is saying here, that that the man was not willing to, to follow at this time. He was delayed. He wanted to hold off. Time should be taken to study uh, these verses perhaps more closely. But for our purposes this morning, the basic lesson uh, for mission is this, that one must be committed to following him wholly and without hesitancy. Jesus' example of determination to follow God's plan for him is, is an example for us. Verse 51 says what? He set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew what God was calling him to, and he would not be turned aside from it. That's the kind of devotion, the kind of dedication, commitment, counting of the cost that we should undertake as we recognize ourselves as messengers for God, following Christ and counting the cost. Christ then sends out 72 others, I prefer the reading 70 in, in the manuscript you see in the sub, uh, in the footnote there, it says 70 or 72. Uh, I believe the number is pointing us back to Genesis chapter 10. We looked at Genesis 10 not so long ago in the, the, the table of nations, if you remember. What did I say about the table of nations? It was that there were 70 nations represented, which is a, a, a speaking of completeness. God was saying that this is all the peoples of the world were there before God, and God had uh, the authority, the right to all of them. Here, Luke's picking up on that, and in Jesus' coming, he's showing that the gathering in of the people of the nations has begun. God is sending forth, at the appointment of his son, he's sending forth messengers to the nations to call the nations in. The harvest has begun. And he gives a further lesson that we that we must pray that workers would be sent forth. Verse 3, or excuse me, verse 2, it says, And Jesus said to these 
70. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Prayer plays a large part in the church's mission. Last Sunday night, we saw that, uh, that whatever we ask in Christ's name, God will do. Well, we're to pray that the Lord's will would be done. Christ prays that God would be known among the nations for his glory. So when we pray, your Lord, your will be done, our prayer is that God would be working that out, that we would be seeing the nations come. We pray for the advancement of God's kingdom as we're engaged in gospel proclamation, that he would go before us opening doors. And then a further reason for prayer Why do we pray? Because we depend upon him. Look at verses 3 and 4. It says there, Jesus said to them, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. A rather interesting set of of, of, uh, verses. We'll be able to look at them in all their detail. But we, we are to be traveling light. We're not to be weighed down with worldly loves, worldly goods, to love the things of the flesh. Rather, we're to know that God will give us all that we need, every good thing that we need, so that we might go forth in service to him. made me think of Achan. Achan gets all that gold from Jericho, puts it under his tent. How quickly could he move at God's call? He couldn't, could he? Because he was going to reveal then where his true love was, all the gold under his tent. How is it with with you? How is it with me? What do we love most? And when God calls, are we ready to go or are we hesitant because we have other things we we need to keep covered up or that we'd we'd rather focus our attention on, that we're, we're building, that we're establishing? And tonight we will consider from how God, the maker and possessor of the whole world, relates to us as a father. He'll give us everything we need. We need not hold on to things tightly. But a few comments on these verses, verses 3 and 4. First, he says, uh, you go out as lambs in the midst of wolves. We're utterly helpless in the world without him. That picture is one of an utter, utter, utter defenseless posture, as it were, in the world. Lambs in the midst of wolves. But the key part of this verse is, behold, I am sending you. We have to remember who's sending us where the strength comes from and whose name we're bringing forth, who we represent. Behold, I am sending you the good shepherd. He protects as a good shepherd. He carries his lambs in his arm as a good shepherd. He does not sleep as the good shepherd. And we could think of many other uh, references to Christ as good shepherd. But he says, behold, I am sending you. But you are needy. You must come and pray. Now, secondly, Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. God's people were to remember. If they were to remember anything at all, it was that God provided for them. That's the whole history of God's people. Looking back and seeing how God provides. Moses reminded them in Deuteronomy 29 that though they walked in the wilderness for 40 years, their sandals did not wear out. God cared for them. They had no need for God Provided their every need. That has application today as we see the tide turning against Christians today. We may think, well, what's going to happen to us? How are we going to to 
to, to make it with all of, the, all of the focus and the attention given to Christians? Well, we have to remember God will provide. It may not look the same as it did in the past, and I think materially, but God will provide. He always has. Well, then those last words, greet no one on the road. Christ is not teaching his disciples to be rude when he says don't greet anyone on the road, but he wants them to have a sense of the urgency of the mission. He says don't let all of the discussions that you might have with others lead you to lose sight of the bigger mission. Greetings in those days could go on for hours, even days, feasts held and and uh, hospitality shown. These are not bad things, but, but it certainly can be distracting from the greater mission. And pretty soon we say, well, I'd rather just not get past the greetings. Let's not talk about what I came here for. Let's just keep enjoying each other's company. It's, it's almost as though we get distracted from the call that we've been given, that is to point people to Christ. Maybe, I don't know, think of it in this way. When you meet with someone that's an unbeliever, they want to talk about all the problems in our world today. They want to talk about the tax plan for the next year. They want to talk about the nation's uh, defense spending. They want to talk about all these other things. And you think, well, okay, I got to just, I got to just keep talking about these things. And, and it's, it's more comfortable because we can agree to disagree on this and it doesn't have these lasting conflicts. But eventually, you're called to bring the word and to point them to what is beyond this next fiscal year and what is beyond this life. So be able to interact on both levels, but don't get stuck at those introductory matters. Get to the important matter of eternity. Well, then rushing through, as it were, to the remainder of this passage, we, we can only touch on a few things. But I wanted to hold them, the verses all together this morning. But Jesus says, here's another lesson for us, that we're to pronounce blessing uh, on those who receive the word and warn those uh, who do not respond positively to God's, uh, to God's word where his displeasure remains on them. And he warns that those who have heard the word will be judged more severely than those who had not heard the word. There was, there's a responsibility to respond to the gospel. You can't just say, oh, that's a bit of information that's interesting. I'm glad you shared that with me. Thank you. I'll put it over here with all the others. There's a call. There's a responsibility then to respond to the gospel. That's, that's, what we're, that's what we press for, for a response. We're not just so that we can say, oh, someone got saved. We want to be careful about keeping charts and, and, and uh, a list of all those that got saved because they said the right words. But we do recognize that we need to, to continue to bring the message until a response has been, been garnered, been, been received. We want to know that they've heard. Well, Luke tells us what happened uh, when the witnesses returned, when the 70 returned. They rejoiced that demons were submitting to them in Christ's name. There's euphoria, we might say, over power encounters. They're excited about the fact that the demons were subjected, uh, submitting in his name. And that is a wonderful testament to God's power and a good thing. For Christ says, I've come to destroy the devil and his works, 1 John uh, chapter 3. 
this reality shows that the forces of evil were being put to flight. But Jesus says, greater joy is this, that one enters into the kingdom of God, that, has, that one has his or her name written in heaven. That's where our joy must be. In the days of Jesus after his ascension, we read of much spiritual battle in the church, in the early church, in the book of Acts. There were many who were fascinated by the power that the apostles wielded and wanted to buy that power. But all of this deliverance was to free individuals from blindness that they might see in Christ everlasting life. So we want to delight in God's grace in converting people and in bringing them near. That's our delight. That's the lesson that we have here, another lesson we have before us. Jesus tells us that our greatest joy should be when we see faith come alive in others. Release from demon possession is wonderful, but Our great joy is to see release lead to faith in Christ, not a lust for power. Well, I'll come to Christ if I get that power. I'll come to Christ if I get that. I want that. Our our focus is to be on calling people to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might be delivered from their sin. Jesus gives example of the rejoicing that we have for he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, verse 21 tells us. Those that the world disregarded were nevertheless receiving a gift from his Father to believe. We learn that one does not need to be well-educated to understand the gospel. Conversion rests in the hands of the Lord. The lesson is that those who believe Christ's word will be saved and brought into God's family. These things are spiritually discerned. So we pray that the Spirit would give eyes to see, minds to understand. That the Spirit would accompany the words that we speak so that the harvest might come in. For the truly blessed are those who see as the disciples saw. Jesus says, verse 23. So as Jesus sets his sight towards Jerusalem, he teaches his disciples a number of lessons, some of which we've looked at this morning, of how to live faithfully in his physical absence. And that is, those are, I think, helpful lessons for us to remember, to keep before us, the idea of resistance, that it is going to happen no matter how nice we put things, but also the idea of prayer and and petition, of leaning upon the Lord, of looking to him, knowing that he will provide, and that of rejoicing in conversions. That's how we want to come back into Luke's gospel as we look at it together in the weeks ahead. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon his word that we would live for his glory now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we look at these verses and as we contemplate the call and how we are to respond And then the message that we are to proclaim, the resistance that it will bring. Lord, may it lead us to be rejoicing when we see others come to the faith. We pray for those on the mission field who are working diligently and patiently 
they might see fruit to their labors, that they might know that you are continuing your work to call the nations in. May we see that in our own neighborhoods, in our own places, that as we speak the truth, others might say, well, there's something about, there's something about your, your family or about you as an individual that, that, I don't, that I don't have. And we have opportunity to speak of our relationship with you, knowing acceptance, having peace, knowing joy that comes from that. Uh, May we be able to share those things. Guide us, give us courage, sustain us, we pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.